Okay, I think we'll get started because we've just pipped a hundred participants. Uh, so uh, good afternoon from a very uh, wintry uh, Cambridge. It's snowing. It's been snowing for several hours here. Uh, I hope you, wherever some, at least some of the folks are enjoying better weather than we are. Uh, so welcome back to the uh, Fairbank Center's Modern Channel Lecture Series um, and to the first uh, lecture of the spring semester. Uh, my name is Arunab Ghosh. I teach uh, modern Chinese history here in the history department, uh, and I'm also the convener of this series. Uh, before I introduce our speaker today, I want to take a minute uh, to inform you of our upcoming uh, talks uh, this semester. Uh, on March the 2nd, a few weeks from now, we will welcome Andrew Liu from Villanova University. Uh, on March the 23rd, we have uh, Elena Songster from St. Mary's College. And on April 13th, our last lecture of the spring, uh, we'll host uh, Joe Kaumoa uh, from Nanyang Technological University. So uh, please look out. I think some of the information might already be online, information about their talks, uh, but, but please keep an eye out for the announcements and please do join us for, for those as well. So uh, today uh, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Eddie Yu, uh, who will be drawing from his award-winning book uh, to tell us about the intellectual uh, as a classificatory social category in 20th century China, as you can tell from the, the, the lecture, um, the title of the lecture already up on the slide here. Uh, professor Yu is a professor of sociology at UC Davis. Uh, he's originally from Hong Kong. Uh, so his higher education and now his career has ex exclusively been in California. So he's, I guess, as much a Californian as he is a Hong Konger. Uh, he got his BA from uh, Cal Poly Pomona and then his PhD from, from UC Berkeley. Uh, his areas of interest uh, include, his areas of research include uh, political sociology, social change, social organization, social interaction, classification and identity. Uh, much of all of this, of course, is focused on, on modern China, 20th century China. He's the author of two monographs. Uh, his first book, Disorganizing China, uh, Counter-Bureaucracy and the Decline of Socialism, was published in 2007 by Stanford University Press and is an examination of the Chinese workplace from the early 1950s to the mid 1960s. His second monograph, uh, Creating the Intellectual, Chinese Communism and the Rise of a Classification, uh, was published in 2019 by UC Press. Uh, in 2020, it was awarded the prestigious Barrington Moore Award uh, by the American Sociology Association Section on Comparative and Historical uh, Sociology. Uh, and Professor Yu's talk, my understanding is draws heavily uh, from, uh, from his award-winning book. Uh, in addition, Professor Yu has uh, co-edited a volume with the historians uh, Ye Wenxin and uh, Rob Kulp uh, called Knowledge Acts in Modern China, which came out in 2016. Uh, and of course, he's the author of numerous journal articles uh, and book chapters. Before I hand things over to him, uh, just a quick few words about format. Uh, Professor Yu will speak for about 40 minutes, uh, and then we'll follow uh, with uh, Q&A uh, for roughly the similar length, uh, for roughly uh, the same amount of time finishing by about between 5.15 and 5.30 uh, Eastern time, that is, of course. Um, if you have questions, uh, please write them down in the Q&A section, uh, the Q&A box. Uh, I will try and make sure um, uh, we get to as many questions as possible. I'll, I'll try and moderate as best as I can. Uh, and I would request before you type, please identify yourself. Um, uh, at the same time, I, I do want to note that we are recording this, con uh, this, this lecture so if you're not comfortable identifying yourself, that's fine too. It's perfectly fine if you'd prefer to stay anonymous. Uh, okay, so with no further ado, uh, let, ado, let me hand things over to Professor Yu. Um, welcome again, and over to you. Thanks. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank Professor Gosh and the 
Fairbank Center at Harvard University for inviting me to do this talk. Thanks to the team at the center for putting the talk together. And of course, thanks to the audience for joining me. I'm excited to share my research with you. Um, this is the front cover of my recent book. It is an open access publication. You can download it for free from Amazon, JSTOR, and many other websites, including international ones. The photo here was taken in the late 1930s as tens of thousands of educated young men and women arrived in Yan'an. The Chinese Communist Party has recently turned the remote town into its headquarter. And from there, it would wage an eventually successful socialist revolution. Today, I'm going to do four things. First, I explain why I wrote this book and the question I asked. Then I illustrate the creation of a population recognized as intellectuals in early 1950s Shanghai, shortly after the, party took the, after the party took the city. I follow with a summary of the book's central argument, that is the invention of the intellectual by the party changed Chinese society dramatically. I conclude by extending my analysis to understanding what the Chinese government is doing in Hong Kong today. Part one. In the 1990s, I took a seminar at Berkeley about intellectuals and came across various definitions of the subject in the literature. Critical thinkers, professional experts, mental workers, and those who speak, to, who speak truth to power are the most common definitions. In the years that followed, whenever I asked groups of colleagues in the United States, England, Australia, or Canada, who they regard as intellectuals, the conversation always turned into an unresolvable debate. The difference of opinions reflects the variety of definitions found in the literature. There's no agreement on what and who the intellectuals are. When I traveled to China, something different happened. Certainty replaced variability. Friends, colleagues and students sometimes begin the sentences like this. We the intellectual. As an intellectual personally. I am an ordinary intellectual. You are a higher intellectual. These friends, colleagues and students share similar views on the membership of intellectuals in China as well as their social and political characteristics. My book is an effort to reconcile this cultural difference about intellectual by treating it as a classification of people. How a population sees and defines intellectuals, not to mention uses and abuse such subjects is an outcome of what Pierre Bourdieu called classification struggles. These battles penetrate state and society to different degrees. Let's dig a little bit deeper in the transnational literature on intellectuals. It traditionally asks two questions. What are intellectuals and what do they do? The more scholars answers these questions, the more types of intellectuals they discover. For example, critical intellectuals, 
traditional intellectuals, free-floating intellectuals, establishment intellectuals, organic intellectuals, academic intellectuals, media intellectuals, public intellectuals, conservative intellectuals, revolutionary intellectuals, citizens intellectuals. The list goes on. Behind this long list, however, is an identical way of seeing the world as composed of individuals and groups occupying social positions and performing social functions. Or in short, the world is composed of identifiable social types. Three problems emerge when using such a perspective to study the intellectual. First, no one talked about intellectual until sometime during the late 19th century. The concept has been reasoned the world over. Second, many of those labeled by scholars and intellectuals do not consider themselves as such. The idea doesn't match personal belief. Third, scholars who wrote about intellectuals rarely tell us what gives them the authority to define some people but not others as intellectuals. In other words, I have questions about historical accuracy, subjective experience, and the authority of classification when it comes to the transnational literature on intellectuals. In my book, I tell a different story about China's intellectuals compared to those found in the literature. I did not begin with a definition of intellectuals. I did not ask what they do in politics or government or during reform or revolution. Instead, I asked what Chinese people did with the intellectual as a classification of people and how that doing transformed politics, identities and institutions in China. The term zhishifenzi or intellectuals began to appear in print in the 1920s. It was hardly part of the everyday language when the Chinese communists took over, took, took over China in 1949. A few years later, however, urban residents could easily identify intellectual within the local population. Before such subjects were locatable everywhere and were later displayed, beaten, and killed during the Cultural Revolution. In other words, while the classification struggle in the United States and elsewhere over what the intellectual is, create mostly an academic debate or a storm in the teacup, the Chinese case approach extreme. How did the classification emerge and spread in China? How did organizations and people use the classification? What were the consequences? What can we learn about Chinese society from this classification struggle? Let's look at how a visible population of intellectual actually appears in Shanghai. In December 1959, the Shanghai government under the control of the Chinese Communist Party began a registration drive, aiming at those officially referred to as unemployed intellectuals. The party's goal was to harness knowledge and skills for industry, education, and other sectors as much as to reduce unemployment in the city ravaged by war and revolution. 
For three decades, the party's leadership had embraced the Leninist notion of intellectuals and voiced strong concerns about these subjects. The key question was how to include these petty bourgeois, self-serving men and women in a socialist project designed to turn China into a powerful nation. Now, in the early 1950s, the party needed a concrete definition of intellectuals to carry out the registration drive. Who, in fact, were intellectuals? Now, these were features of the drive that served to create a visible population of intellectuals in Shanghai. Um, I will take you through each of them. I'll give you a few seconds to read it first. When Beijing proposed the registration drive, it suggests unemployed persons who had graduated from senior high school or equivalent could sign up as unemployed intellectuals. There were restrictions on political grounds. Ineligible, for example, were some of those people who had worked for the defeated nationalist regime and others who might have been criminals. By the time the drives began in Shanghai, Beijing had already lowered eligibility from senior high school graduation to junior high school graduation. These, this change pulled large numbers of people into the state category of intellectuals, at least on paper. To promote the drive, the Shanghai government printed manuals that further explain eligibility. This is a picture of the manual. For example, former peddlers and pedicab drivers with enough education could sign up as unemployed intellectuals to receive assistance. And so could former dance hostesses, some of whom had been sex workers. Not so for instructors of Confucian classics. The state noted that these people lack knowledge of modern culture and science to be useful for socialist development. Rural landlords hiding in the city, staff members fired from state enterprises, and college graduates who had refused official assignment were also ineligible. The government opened 10 registration offices across the city. It established policies, procedures, and regulations, devised application forms and identification cards, and publicized the drive on newspapers and radio. This is a complete registration form from Sichuan province. The form used in Shanghai was similar. The government organized courses for registration staff on how to use bulletin board and public meetings to promote the drive. Hundreds of professional trade, labor, and other associations were summoned to assist in assessing, certifying, and writing reports on the applicants including their education, work history, and even political and class backgrounds. This newspaper article tells applicants who had lost their documents to approach the associations to obtain certification. The drive lasts for almost a year before integrate into a broader unemployment registration campaign. The eligibility for signing up as unemployed intellectuals changed again. 
For example, restrictions against former military officers and expelled government employees were lifted. Academically, academically qualifying homemakers were no longer eligible unless their family was in severe poverty. By contrast, jobless workers with enough education could choose to sign up as unemployed intellectuals or as unemployed workers. The government set up large numbers of registration committees within local neighborhoods. It trained thousands of jobless workers, homemakers, and residents to staff the committees. These people used bulletin board messages and other means to promote the campaign. They visited families to explain policies and eligibility. The government introduced a procedure called collective appraisal to prevent fraud and abuse. Committees work with local residents publicly to assess all applicants, including determining whether anyone belonged to the category of unemployed intellectuals. The two registration events last for a total of 14 months in Shanghai. 40,000 people were identified as unemployed intellectuals. This table shows the ages and education of the first 34,000 registrants. Half of them barely met the minimum education requirement. Only 12% had college education. The youngest cohort were the least educated. As for professional skills, 23% had rudimentary experience in finance or economics. 19% were former school teachers or other kinds of white collar workers. The largest proportion, 35%, did not report any skills. The authorities were predictably disappointed. Quote, plenty of registrants, registrants are of low cultural level. The majority have acquired their knowledge from part-time school or have been jobless because of chronic illness or have not worked before, unquote. This poor outcome reflects not only widespread desperation for work, it was a result of state behavior. Training and hiring after 1949 had been favoring educated young people because the state saw them as less tainted by bourgeois ideology and traditional culture. Young people joined agencies and establishments inside and outside of Shanghai in large numbers. Even more disturbing to the authorities were the political backgrounds and belief of the registrants. Quote, many sons and younger brothers of landlords and rich peasants, members of revolutionary, uh, excuse me, members of reactionary political parties and youth corps, former judicial personnel, bureaucrats and military officers, and their family members with very poor understanding of the socialist revolution and very backward thinking about class exploitation, unquote. This undesirable outcome was inevitable, inevitable too. When the communists took over Shanghai, they dismissed from governments and elsewhere thousands of people deemed oppositional or incompetent. Closures of banks, casinos, hotels, and trading firms afterward displaced many whose work had catered to the business clientele or promote consumerism. 
Nearby land reform drove landlords and a family into the city. Some of these people eventually declared themselves as unemployed intellectuals who needed work. In other words, a self-fulfilling prophecy emerged. Although Beijing saw intellectuals as political, uh, politically unreliable, it wanted to harness unused knowledge and skills. However, the way the state defined intellectuals, conducted appointments and dismissals, and ran registration drives, predetermined the kinds of people who would sign up as unemployed intellectuals. In the end, the state obtained what it had feared, a pool of, pe a pool of people whom it felt would wreak havoc on socialist development. Now, what happened to those who registered? 18 months after the start of the registration, only 30% of these 34,000 people found jobs through state assistance. On one level, this low rate of success reflects that agencies and companies wanted to hire skilled professionals, but did not find them among the applicants. On another, on another level, the low rate reflects discriminatory behavior. Agencies and companies respond to the state discourse of class struggle. They did not want to pick up, for example, former police officers, landlords, or bureaucrats. They prefer younger candidates because these persons, or what these persons had done, including wrongdoing, were easily verifiable compared to the backgrounds of older candidates. Such discrimination prompted some registrants to hide backgrounds they deem harmful to job search. Sensing such evasiveness becoming frequent, the authorities intensified surveillance. State establishments and agencies investigate people whom they have taken on. They force them to describe their backgrounds, lifestyle, social networks, and political activities. They monitor and evaluate their thinking and behavior. Official criticism of intellectuals as petty bourgeois subjects became the analytical lens. These people were seen as usable but unreliable. Training sessions, meetings, and everyday events became occasions for observations. Speech and comportment were documented as evidence. The authorities then coded the assessment in the language of class struggle. For example, sincere about learning indicates one displays proper attitudes toward Marxist-Leninist views. Backward thinking indicates unwillingness to accept official teachings. Strong petty bourgeois proclivities means that the subject dresses well, focuses on how much they would earn, and like to talk about their family. In short, between the state's efforts to register unemployed intellectuals and to return them to work, many otherwise perfectly ordinary people became a describable, analyzable object with moral, ideological, and behavioral inclinations to be uncovered. In the eyes of the government, they were all usable but unreliable intellectuals.
Now, these were numbers of articles in a major Shanghai newspaper containing terms referring to educated people before and after 1949. Look at the second column. As the revolution approached, the word intellectuals was far from being the dominant term referring to educated people. Most Shanghainese had little reason to think or talk about the intellectuals, still less consider whether they personally belong to this population. Something extraordinary happened afterward. Look at the third column. The registration drives partly contribute to the spread of the term intellectuals in the newspaper. More broadly, during the drives, the intellectual as a classification of people saturated official an uh, announcements, support the establishments of offices and committees, shape bureaucratic rules and activities, and led to mechanisms of governance within local neighborhoods and methods of domination within the workplace. State officials, registration staff, enterprise managers, unemployed persons, and neighborhood residents began to assess whether they themselves and whether others were intellectuals. In other words, the intellectual appeared twice during the registration drives, in the administrative routines of the state and in the mental routines of ordinary people. What bridged the rise of the classification across the routines was the capacity of organization, representation, and classification of the Chinese Communist Party. By the end of the drive, the intellectual have morphed from a social classification unfamiliar to most Chinese to embodied subjects zigzagging across neighborhoods. The intellectual had become a material reality. Let's move on to part three of my talk. In 1980, an interviewer asked Michel Foucault about intellectual. In this usual provocative manner, the French philosophy said he has never met any intellectuals, but only people who talk about them. He said that the intellectual had taken on human forms, guilty of everything, about speaking out and about keeping silent about doing nothing and about getting involved in everything. For Foucault, the intellectual is a fictional, yet recognizable being, a social construction par excellence. This is what I show in my book. The intellectual as a classification of people first appeared in 19th century France. The classification then spread around the world, deployed for social classification, status, distinction, social analysis, political struggle, official control, and other purposes. Compared with the United States and other countries, China's experience with the classification was transformative, altering politics, identities, and institutions. My book begins on the eve of the May 4th movement of 1919 when the intellectual as a classification of people was about to enter the thinking of the Chinese Communist Party. I then take the reader to Yan'an, Shanghai, Beijing, Guangxi, and other places, and show how the classification spread as well as shape state and society until China was on the edge of the Cultural Revolution. 
I look at political debates, rural organization, registration activities, workplace dynamics, theater and themes, and individual reactions using archival documents, newspapers and magazines, and secondary sources. This is what I found in a nutshell. The classification increasingly turned up in policies and speeches of the party leadership, in bureaucratic rules, personnel reports, and government statistics, in newspapers and textbooks, in radio shows, theater performances and themes, and in official notices and registration forms. As a person, the intellectual was increasingly locatable across a wide range of circumstances. During state assemblies, re-education classes, land reform activities, and official campaigns, as well as within the neighborhood, the family, the school, and the university, and all sorts of workplaces. Those who were regarded as intellectuals at one time or another include many types of people, leaders of the Communist Party, scientists, writers, artists, school teachers, doctors and nurses, soldiers, office workers, secondary school students, and sometimes primary school graduates, as well as homemakers and former peasants and former factory workers and so on. The classification was transformative in another important respect. The party leadership was determined to attack what it saw as the selfish character and wayward beliefs of intellectuals as much as to harness their knowledge and skills for socialist development. The party has invested heavily in the production of political theories, narratives, and rhetoric. Governing approaches, programs, and measures proliferated. Official tasks multiplied wherever so-called intellectuals were located or locatable, especially work related to documentation, investigation, re-education, evaluation, supervision, and categorization. In short, the intellectuals imagined by party because became a fulcrum of its discourse and practice, which in turn nurtured an ever-expanding bureaucratic apparatus. This mutual constitution between the intellectual and Chinese socialism has left behind a visible legacy. Today, the Chinese state continues to define, categorize, and govern populations and individuals as intellectuals. Many institutions constructed in the last century to do so are still in place. For example, ideological education, mass surveillance, and workplace management by party cadres. These institutions will be in place so long as the party sees the intellectual as a usable but unreliable subject. I will end this presentation with some speculative interpretation of Beijing's increasing intervention in Hong Kong's law, education, journalism, and other institutions. What does the ferocity have to do with Beijing's understanding of the intellectual? A lot. Now, this is a picture from the Observer, an online site sponsored by the Chinese government. The time was October 2019. The place was the Chinese University of Hong Kong. The man on the left is the president of the campus. The occasion was an open meeting with students. 
some of whom have endured police brutality during the mass protests against the extradition bill. According to the caption, an upset student aimed a laser pointer at the face of the president, who then, quote, pathetically plead, I hope you won't use the green laser pointer on me. Will you be able to do that? Unquote. For the author and the commentators of this article, such a weak response from the president to what they call rioters capture the cowardice of intellectuals in Hong Kong. The man grew up there, attended Catholic school and got his PhD in the United States. He had a very successful, successful academic and research career before returning to Hong Kong to head the university. For his critics, colonial and neo-colonial training is part of him. How can people like this be expected to, do, to defend Beijing's integration of Hong Kong into China? Under Xi Jinping, Beijing has tightened control over those in whom it regards as China's intellectuals. The regime's global ambitions apparently required complete conformity from these people. Cameras in the classroom, heightened vetting of conference topics and participants, demotion, firing, and imprisonment are some of the state's weapons of domination against intellectuals. For Beijing, Hong Kong therefore must be a jarring anomaly. The recent mass protests shows that no amount of economic support of the former colony would change the hearts and minds of the population. Nor would other tactics attain such an objective, for example, control of the mainstream media, resettlement of mainlanders, sponsorship of pro-Beijing political parties, and spending at the grassroots levels. Many simply do not and will not support Beijing. Who are the protesters? Culture students and faculty, doctors and nurses, lawyers and accountants, civil servants, artists, journalists, filmmakers, and all kinds of white collar workers, and equally important, their children. From Beijing's perspective, the mass protests must look like a revolt led by petty bourgeois intellectuals an uprising bringing to mind 1957 and 1989. This time, however, the revolt occurs not in an agrarian or developing economy, but in a post-industrial societies whose operation relies on those petty bourgeois intellectuals. Worse, the society has an unabashed post-colonial character. The majority of the population has limited identification with China. They call themselves Hong Kongers. And making it more challenging, Beijing does not hold strong levers of control over Hong Kong. Unlike what it had accomplished in China before 1957 or 1989, there is no domination of state-owned enterprises. There isn't a multitude of party cells to implement official policies and programs. Denunciations, police violence, arrests, imprisonment, and so on, create obstacles for the mass protests that did not stop it. This is where the Hong Kong National Security Law came in. Adopted by Beijing seven months ago, 
the law threatens to impose to imprison anyone who speak out against the Hong Kong or the Chinese government. In effect, it outlaws pub public protests and hence demobilized the revolt. The law accomplished in Hong Kong what troops and tanks obtained in Beijing in 1989. What will Beijing do in Hong Kong from now on, besides arresting notable democratic activists for the world to see? Probably what it has always done to petty bourgeois intellectuals. That is changing the incentive structure to promote reward and compliance. Changing the uh, excuse me, changing the incentive structure to promote and reward compliance and loyalty, and at the same time make life unpleasant for critics and detractors. And this has to be done without setting up a multitude of party cells in Hong Kong or breaching the last line of, def of defense of Beijing's already broken promise of one country, two systems. Given the high level of economic inequality in Hong Kong, even higher than that in China, I don't think Beijing see the task as daunting at all. The number of Beijing supporters will grow in Hong Kong. More concretely, Rituals of compliance, such as the oath of allegiance now forced upon civil servants would accelerate. Political education would appear in different ways and extend beyond schools and universities. A system of dossiers that documents people's thinking and behavior would emerge. Political screening will spread as part of recruitment and promotion. Police authority and everyday surveillance will continue to expand. Beijing will probably that led hundreds of thousands to flee overseas and replace them with mainland immigrants. Mainland investment and enterprises in Hong Kong will increase and so will their functions of political control. We may see suppression of salary growth to undermine the economics behind dissent. In, in short, the petty bourgeoisie Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. In short, the petty bourgeois intellectuals that Beijing once imagined would derail Chinese socialism has been reborn in an official fantasy of a regional plot to destabilize global China. We can expect Beijing to draw on its 70 years of experience of governing petty bourgeois intellectuals to govern the former colony. Hong Kong is the new crucible for the party to devise strategies of governance especially against those whom it regards as unreliable intellectuals. Thank you very much for your patience and attention. Great, thank you so much, uh, Professor Yu. That was really fascinating uh, and really stimulating. Uh, I'm gonna take my privilege as chair and probably ask the first question, but as I do, and as Professor Yu answers, please feel free to start typing in your questions, uh, which I will then proceed to moderate. Um, as we go along, but maybe uh, just uh, as, as a starter, I have a, a bunch, but maybe I can ask uh, to use a phrase that you used and of course that you, you encountered, which is this thing about, you know, they were useful, the intellectuals were useful, but unreliable, the party's perspective. Uh, do, do you find that they've evolved over time a very a sort of finer sense of what it meant to be useful? I'm thinking in particular about, you know, the different needs of the regime at different points in time as you you know, start in the 1950s and then you, and you, and you go forward in time. Uh, and I'm thinking in with one specific sort of category in mind, which is uh, the vast number of experts who returned in the early 1950s to China to help. 
in, es in essence, contribute and build socialism in China. Uh, so these were all people who, uh, many of them would go on to have uh, very difficult lives because of their foreign experience, because of activities they may have done abroad, but then there are others who did not. Uh, and a lot of this, I think, I suspect had to do with what specific areas they were involved in. Uh, and so this question of how do we break down this, what was the, the party's understanding of what constitute, constitutes usefulness? And, and you know, so any reflection on that would be very interesting. Right. Um, the understanding of um, what constitutes reliability and what constitutes usefulness definitely evolved, uh, both at the central level and at the personal interactive level. Um, the experts that you mentioned, some of whom were approached by high officials and they were convinced by those officials that the Chinese Communist Party would follow a certain path and create a nation that these experts could find a place in. And that was the attraction, right? On the interactive level, you can tell a story to convince these people that they were very useful for the country. But as we know, the story unfolds terribly for many of these people because there is that other part, especially if these experts did not understand the Leninist ideas behind the concept of intellectuals used by the party or the other part about their unreliability, their threats to the regime, their threat to a project of socialism. And I think um, this kind of variability and evolution between the idea of usefulness and the idea of reliability continues throughout and probably will continue and will go on. Um, the Great Leap Forward is a good example, excellent example that um, the Beijing did not, and did not embrace the idea that these people were that useful or intellectuals were that useful at all to promote development in the country. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. So <clears throat> we, have, uh, we have a question that's come in that's asking about terminology, I guess. So I'll just read it out. It's an anonymous attendee. Uh, they have asked uh, for clarity, does the use of the label intellectual uh, mean to smear those who are unreliable supporters or in opposition to party goals? And how does an intellectual differ from a scholar or a literati? I guess those were some of the other terms in one of the tables you had. Uh, right. Um, let me look at the question again. Yeah. Okay. Um, it depends on um, the circumstances surrounding the use of the term, right? Um, sometimes the term is used as a, um, an undesirable description of a person. Um, but at other times, depending on the political context, it can carry positive meanings. And of course, who control those meanings is the central question. 
mm-hmm. right? And the party always have the most control over the meaning of the term intellectual, right? And would you bring us to those other terms that this audience members uh, have brought up? Wenren, uh, ren. And these are terms that was very popular in circulation, especially around the literate, lit, literate community, right? In the 1930s up to even up 1960s, 1970s and, and so on, and even, even now. Um, those terms at some point, especially after the Mao era, were revived by some scholars and other literate people because they did not like the connotation of the term after that term have been pulled through mud, if you will, during the Cultural Revolution. Um, so there were attempts to use traditional terms to describe their own identity or invent new terms to describe their um, intellectual identity, um, their education, their expertise, rather than falling back to a term, to the term that has gone through so much history. Great, thank you. Um, as we wait for, oh, we got another question here. Uh, this is from Kellis Wong, who says, nice to hear Professor Yu's presentation. I am a fellow Hong Konger. Professor Yu raised an interesting point about intellectuals who are deemed useful and reliable, will be accepted and put to use in post-Maoist China. Have the criteria that access what qualities are useful and reliable changed over the years? If yes, why? I guess this is to some extent what I asked you, but uh, it's in a slightly different mode. So I don't know if you want to uh, address it a little bit. Um, Uh, the short answer is yes. I mean, if we track um, the official publications and use sampling to study what kind of meanings are invested into the term, I bet you will find variations. There probably is a set of core meanings that is always there but at the same time, the proportion of positiveness and negativeness, if you will, changes. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the membership, um, you may find that who are being described as intellectuals by the state and who are described as intellectuals by writers, journalists, they, those membership may differ too. Great, thank you. We have um, a question from uh, Paulina Hartono. Uh, Hey, Paulina, who asks, uh, thank you for this uh, fascinating lecture. Could you speak more about the etymology of Jeshurfenze, particularly why this word was seen as having more ideological freight than its alternatives in the early years post 1949? Um, Initially, the Chinese Communist Party, like, um, composed of uh, very educated people 
the, the first leaders of the Chinese Communist Party. Initially, they, like other educated, educated people, use the, the um, common terms to describe educated people. And around the May 4th movement, they, all of them, like to use the term intellectual class, right? Um, so there was not much difference in the, in the way they used that term during the May 4th movement. But then there was a distinction emerged afterward um, in the mid 1920s to the late 1930s and into the late 1920s. And by the mid 1930s, I suspect, um, the Chinese Communist Party has abandoned using the term while others were still using it. And up to 1949, those others were still using that term. Uh, the term is interesting in um, the, the discourse of Marxism is that uh, the discourse of Marxism has a term, is, is, is a class analysis, class or jeji. So at some point, in other words, the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party realized that they were using a term which was incompatible with the class analysis of Marxism. And I did not find evidence of any debate about converting that term to but I suspect that is the rationale for abandoning the use of the term within the Communist Party and go over to use the term right? Um, if uh, I hope that answer at least part of your question. Great, thank you. Uh, we're getting uh, some very interesting questions coming in. So I'm gonna try and moderate them and, and sort of ask them as possible, as much as possible sort of uh, thematically, sort of, so that they're thematically together. Uh, but maybe next we can take this question uh, from Professor Patricia Thornton, who asks, I was wondering if Professor Yu might say a bit more about how he understands the Leninist concept of the intellectual. And in particular explains how his perspective differs from Conrad and Zeleny's construction of the role of intellectuals in a Leninist context uh, in their book, uh, Intellectuals in the Road to Class Power. Uh, thanks. Conrad uh, and Zeleny um, begin with their own definitions of intellectuals. So whoever has some college education or close to college education, they would regard those individuals as intellectuals. And so they see this group of people gaining influence in politics, in economics, and so on in Eastern Europe. Um, I don't share that view. And um, in my my, my take on intellectual is very different from theirs. I don't start with defining a certain group of people as intellectuals like they do. Um, and I want to see how different powers and people and organization 
do the definition and how in the course of doing that definition, they actually produce administrative practices to either deal with these people, use people, use these people that they regard as intellectuals or, or abuse them. Um, and I am seeing that um, the, the term intellectual is used in many different ways uh, for various interests, personal and institutional interests, and certainly the interests of the Communist, uh, Communist Party. And I think that's the difference between uh, my take on the intellectual in social society and their take on intellectuals in social society. In social society. Great, it's we quite, actually- It's quite a different one. Mm -hmm. and, and in some ways, I think there's a nice follow-up question from Professor Susan Greenhall, who is, uh, as you know, herself an anthropologist, uh, and she's asking you more about sort of the, the, the theoretical foundations for your project. So she asks, I'm curious about the theoretical grounding for this fascinating project. Anthropologists have done parallel studies of the creation, bureaucratization, and the effects of different social categories, for instance, class, black population, quality population, and so on, in post-78 China. Uh, their work is grounded in broadly Foucauldian notions of discourse, subjectification, and so on. So she's asking, where do you see your theoretical roots? Very close to, to, uh, to what is, is being said. Um, uh, I'm certainly uh, influenced by Foucault's work, and I'm influenced by Pierre Bourdieu's work on classification and symbolic power, how people use their power to represent the world to get others to accept the categories that they see. And that is a, uh, and what the Chinese Communist Party succeed is an excellent example of this use of symbolic power to present China as a certain kind of place with certain kind of people to the Chinese people and more generally um, to the world. And at the same time, um, my project is also based on very productive studies uh, done by uh, feminist scholars and race scholars, because they are the one that are at the forefront of problematizing categories, if you will, gender categories as constructions. Racial categories are not natural, but they are constructed through a web of discourse, practice, and power. So that, that um, in short, is the uh, theoretical grounding of my project. Great, thank you. Um, we have, uh, to change tack slightly, we have a question from James Watson Cripps, who's a PhD candidate uh, at Princeton University, who says, Professor Yu, thank you very much for taking the time to share your research with us. Jumping off the question already asked, my question has to do with the classification process itself relative to geography. Uh, did the parameters for intellectual change based on one's location? Was the term more capacious in Shanghai, for example, than in a place like Jinan or Chengdu? Right. Uh, thanks. Thanks for the question. Um, the way I think of it is that this process of classification began with the rise of the Chinese Communist Party and gradually spread across the entire China, right? and perhaps uh, lately to Hong Kong. Um, so there is a lot of variability, a lot of unknowns, and these uh, opportunities 
uh, for others who are interested um, to, if, if you will, um, follow up some of the questions that I asked. Um, it would be fascinating and hopefully it would be, um, they would be able to find evidence, um, archival and other kinds of evidence to talk about how precisely the process of classification unfold, say in Xinjiang, in Tibet, within the military or within factories, because my work has focused on schools and, and that is where I know most, but I cannot claim to say that I know a lot about that process, how that process unfold in say a village in the 1960s or at the height of the cultural revolution in Guangxi or a rural part of Guangxi. Uh, those are questions that um, can be asked and hopefully can be answered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, this, this point that you just raised about sort of variations that also take into account urban rural kinds of distinctions uh, and, and there's a very interesting question, I think, that ties, ties what you just said to a slightly longer durée history of, of China. So this is an anonymous attendee. They're asking, China has a long history of censorship and punishing dissent. Uh, in what ways are the current practices under Xi different from those during the Ming or the Qing? And I would extend this to say, how, how would you connect maybe practices in the Ming or the Qing to what you discovered in the 50s and 60s uh, in some ways? Oh. Are there connections or not? <laughs> Uh, thanks, thanks, thanks for the question. Uh, I, I have to defer uh, the excellent questions to my historian uh, colleagues, um, trained as a sociologist, focusing on, on the 20th century and now a little bit on the 21st century. Uh, my knowledge of how discipline and punishment unfold and the institutions or, or, or the configurations of, of those institutions in Ming and Qing dynasty, I am not that knowledgeable on that front. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, so we have a question uh, looking at, I guess, other kinds of comparisons, I guess. So if not within Chinese history, uh, a more obvious one for, for the CCP, which would of course be the Soviet Union. So this is Kevin Luo, who's a fellow at the, the Fairbank Center. He says, I'm curious how much of this system of identifying and constructing the intellectual class in communist China was something that was learned from other communist examples, that is the Soviet Union, or was this something that arose independently out of a Chinese context? Uh, another excellent question um, that I cannot fully address, and I'll tell you why. Um, if, if you look at the literature on Eastern Europe and Russia, uh, you will find a perspective or the, the, the research on intellectuals there, uh, their perspective is closer to what um, Conrad and Selene said. That is to say, these research begin with the definitions of the intellectual. Whether that definition is drawn from academic traditions in in the United States or Europe, or whether those research begins with the official definitions of intellectuals in the Soviet Union or Eastern Europe. They begin with some definitions. Unfortunately, I don't read um, 
Russian or any Eastern European language. Um, so I don't, so being able to read the native language is very important to understanding how categories are constructed. And uh, I haven't seen research on Eastern Europe and Russia about the construction of the intellectual category. So um, probably the process, probably there was a process uh, within these socialist regimes, but how seriously did they take that idea of the intellectual and implemented it in political and administrative mechanisms is a different question. And I suspect that um, using the kind of research that I'm doing and transport or export this such a perspective to investigate Eastern Europe and Russia, um, there may be some fruitful results, but obviously it's not something that I can do because I don't know um, any native language in those areas. Mm -hmm. One, one thing that's in this connection that's somewhat telling, I guess, is that uh, it doesn't seem, uh, you know, given the, the the kinds of materials you've looked at for the, the 1950s uh, and the absence of Soviet advisors or Soviet experts would then suggest perhaps that there isn't at least, so there is one is the comparative, but then the other is the actual connective kind of influence. And it would suggest that maybe in this particular case, there wasn't the same kind of, especially in the early 50s, when for mo so many things, uh, the, the the Communist Party was looking to the Soviet uh, uh, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union uh, for for guidance and, and advice and so on. So that itself, I think, is, is somewhat telling. Um, we have a few more questions here. Um, we have uh, a question from David uh, Gundry who asks, uh, "Do you think that one reason those who were prepared, who were placed in this new category of intellectual, became objects of suspicion by the CCP was that they fit into a conceptual niche?" similar to that of pre-Republican literati? So this is again a slightly historical question. Mm -hmm. uh, right. David is my colleague at uh, ah. UC Davis. Uh, he's a Japanese specialist. And at one point I asked him about um, uh, a, a Chinese term um, and he gave me a, a very, um, uh, he gave me the answer, answer that useful for my research. Um, the, the Chinese Communist Party did not invent the idea of the intellectual out of thin air. Part of the idea is taken from Marxism and Leninism. And another important part of the idea is taken from the discourse of educated people, about educated people in Lei Ching and um, the early Republican period. There was a lot of dissatisfaction with um, the educated population. This is dissatisfaction from the educated population about the educated population, right? Um, really intense dislike of the activated population because of the weakness, cowardice, or whatever um, bad adjective you can think of. 
that they were responsible for the weakness of the Chinese nation compared to other powerful nations that were rising at the time around the world. So that was a major part of how the Chinese Communist Party construct the idea of the intellectual. That is to say, using cultural resources available in China at that time. And these were very powerful resources, very powerful descriptions circulating in newspaper journals uh, around literate, literate communities about the weakness, the powerlessness, the cowardice of uh, educated people and, and the leaders of the Chinese, you know, the first leaders of the Chinese Communist Party took it and ran with it. Great, thanks. We have uh, a couple of very interesting questions that, that speak to sort of the role of the public intellectual. So maybe I can, we can take them one at a time. Uh, the first one is all, again from an anonymous attendee. They ask if we are to apply the idea of the creation of intellectuals to present day China, uh, especially in the cybersphere, I'm curious how we could make sense of the coincidence of Xi's, Xi Jinping's re rejuvenation of red slash socialist culture and the negative narratives surrounding uh, public intellectuals, so Gongzhi. Right, the negative um, uh, narrative surrounding Gongzhi has been there for almost two decades, right? If I remember correctly. Um, and certainly it is not something that um, a regime such as this one um, that is ruling China would find attractive or would want to promote. If anything, it would continue to suppress discussions of Gongzhi, which nevertheless happened online, that even though there was, no, there has been conscious effort to suppress that debate in China, nevertheless, it happens to some extent um, online because it is just not completely possible to ban discussion of that term. And uh, I don't know if, if that answers um, this audience question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. And there's uh, in some ways a, a related question that speaks to uh, sort of intellectuals and social responsibility. So it's a long question, I'll read it, read it out. It's very interesting, I think. Uh, so this is from uh, uh, Ife Yao. I wonder if Professor Yu can elaborate on the entanglement between intellectuals and their social responsibility in the public. I ask this question because I'm familiar with music bands and filmmakers who are educated college graduates participating in Chinese underground culture, uh, but they only show their work and communicate, uh, communicate in small friend circles and do not intend to have a strong public voice. So I wonder if Professor Yu perceives them as intellectuals and if so, how would you categorize them? Um, I, um, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I, I mean, in, in a, in a way, um, I want to look at how they want to describe themselves and probably someone whom you describe, uh, would consider themselves as Zhu but at the same time, they may be rebellious to the extent that they refuse to accept that term. 
And that is certainly the prerogative, right? Um, so my question is not, I wouldn't ask the question how I would categorize them. Rather, if given the opportunity, I would try to get a sense of how they think of their own identity in relation to the idea of zhizhifenzi. I hope that answers your question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because I, I think that is a more interesting exercise about identity, how they think of themselves um, in, in the context of this um, profoundly important history of the intellectual that has shaped contemporary China. Mm -hmm. There's uh, on this question, there's, there's also a, a question from Charles Hayford, or Chuck Hayford, who mm -hmm. says, how does the intellectual differ from the professional or the expert? So I guess these are all very specific terms uh, in, yeah. in PRC history. So, right. so um, in the 1950s, of course, the uh, umbrella term, if you will, is jushifenzi. So professionals or experts are groups subsumed under jushifenzi, right? Um, by the 1980s, however, you have more people as sources, um, journalistic sources, and even including the Chinese government itself, uh, using the term uh, expert or professionals more than, or at least more uh, than in the past, uh, talking about zhuanjia rather than zhushifenzi. And depending, and those terms, of course, in the minds of those who use it, in the minds of those who read it, I think, uh, for the most part, are uh, interchangeable. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, there's, um, there have been some questions about the contemporary moment also, and I'm thinking in a slightly different vein, how much of this, you know, in as much as um, uh, through the Belt and Road and other initiatives, there is an attempt to project a, a, it's not a model per se, but a Chinese way of doing things that a lot of other countries can, can deploy. Do you see, and those are always positive examples, right? In terms of how successful infrastructure projects can be, how successful administration can be and so on. Uh, do you see any, this is more a speculative question, I guess. Do you see any uh, possibility of something like this, the legacy of dealing with intellectuals and, and it ties into the earlier question about dissent in some ways being something that also has a huge impact in other countries that have strong strong uh, relations with the, the PRC? Um, that, mm, um, we know that um, the Chinese government um, has many investment projects in different parts of the world, right? Um, we know that probably the Chinese government has more influence in the quote-unquote developing world with investment ideas, management, construction, and all those kinds of projects. Whether all those kinds of projects, including the Confucius Institute, will become in those countries a way to introduce the ways of thinking of the Chinese government in those, uh, in those countries? Um, I, I guess the short answer is yes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, with economic power, you can gain symbolic power, the power of representation. Mm 
the power to have others to accept your ideas, mm -hmm. right? The way you see the world. But I wouldn't think the idea of the intellectual is such an important, important commodity, if you will, to export to other countries. Uh, but I do think that within China, that is a very important idea to continue to uh, to um, to continue. What is the word I'm looking for? To continue to give rise to new strategies to control the educated population. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. I think it's, it is it is fascinating because I'm trying to think of it in terms of also the broader attack on expertise that we're seeing across, you know, multiple, multiple uh, societies today. Uh, and also often the very confrontational kinds of, you know, look at what's happening in Turkey right now with Erdogan uh, essentially, uh, you know, sending police into university campuses and it's happened in other, other contexts also. And there it's very much oppositional, but what this, what you, what you're describing suggests actually a much more nuanced and graduated kind of approach that is again, to go back to the, that earlier point about sort of useful, but reliable. So it's not just about shutting, shutting down uh, these people who are annoying uh, at some times, but actually the calibrate so that you can actually make them useful also. So just, it's actually a much more nuanced approach than I see in what that we're seeing right now in so many other countries. So, so I think that makes it quite, quite interesting to think about. Um, we, we are more or less at time. Uh, I don't, unless a, a question pops up uh, suddenly and, and, and you feel you want to answer it. Uh, I think we can we can bring things to a close here. Uh, and so thank you so much once more for, for this fascinating talk. And uh, thank you to everyone in the audience for attending and thank you for your questions. Uh, and uh, we look forward to seeing you in a few weeks uh, when uh, I think with Andy Leo, if I remember correctly. So, so thank you again and goodbye. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.